One of the great fantasies of the left is that if the older generation simply dies off, all their policy goals will be achieved. In 2013, Oprah Winfrey mused, after two elections of President Obama, that it might require older white Americans to die for America to achieve racial progress. She said, there are still generations of people, older people, who were born and bred and marinated in it, in that prejudice and racism, and they just have to die. Now Bill, Ma Bill Nye, the purported science guy, is thinking along the same track. He told the LA Times on Wednesday, quote, climate change deniers, by way of example, are older. It's generational. We're going to have to wait out for these people to age out, as they say. Age out is a euphemism for die. But it'll happen, I guarantee you. That'll happen. That's true, death does happen. So these musings are not only pathetically immoral, they are anti-democratic. The notion behind a representative republic is that people can be convinced on the issues. If Nye hasn't convinced people that global warming is a catastrophic threat requiring massively burdensome government interference, that would be his fault. Perhaps he's too busy producing songs about my sex chunk or cartoons with polysexual ice cream scoops. But the fantasy of the left is that the demographics of the country will move in their direction if they can just get rid of undesirable populations. And that has a pretty dark undertone. Hoping your political opponents croak so that you can win legislative battles without having to win the argument. And it's massive nastiness. While conservatives sometimes joke about leftists having fewer babies and then losing the argument through demographics, we're not actually rooting for that to happen. Nor do we think that lack of kids from leftists would be a necessity for political victory. But on the left, the hatred for those old white Americans is pretty real. And it's one of the driving factors behind that constituency's hard turn toward candidates like President Trump. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. All righty, so we are going to get to everything that is happening over at UC Berkeley. I'll give you the update on that. I'm going to give you the update on Everything that has happened, President Trump gave a, a, an ill-advised, shall we say, interview with the New York Times. We will talk about it. Uh, we will also be talking about the latest on Obamacare. Um, but before we do any of that, first, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Lyft. So right now, Lyft is looking for drivers. And the drivers at Lyft are the happiest drivers there are. I know because I, I use Lyft all the time. Every time I never tell them that, that Lyft is a sponsor of the program. I always just ask them, how do you like driving for Lyft? And the answer universally is, really like it, and I make a lot of money on the side. And that's what Lyft is great for because Lyft offers in-app tipping. When you drive for Lyft, you keep 100% of the tips. Drivers have been paid over $150 million in tips since the feature was introduced. I assume that's more than one driver. That's one super rich driver. <laughs> Express Pay actually lets drivers pay almost instantly instead of you waiting for weeks. And they've taken the guesswork out of pickups. They have a new AMP device that uses color coding to help passengers find their drivers. You can make hundreds of dollars per week, plus tips. If you want to make more money, you drive more. It is a simple formula, and happy drivers mean happy passengers. I've always thought that Lyft does a great job, and that's because they keep their drivers happy, which says something about how you will do if you drive with Lyft. So join the ride-sharing company that truly cares about its drivers. Lyft.com slash Shapiro today. Lyft, L-Y-F-T dot com slash Shapiro today. You get a $500 new driver bonus right off the bat. Lyft.com slash Shapiro today. That is Lyft.com slash Shapiro. Limited time only and terms do apply. Lyft.com slash Shapiro. L-Y-F-T dot com slash Shapiro. Check that out. Become a driver, a great way for people to make uh, a side income or main income, depending on how much you drive. So go over and check it out. Okay, so the update on UC Berkeley. So yesterday, uh, I am sitting around minding my own business, as I am apt to do, and I get a notice from Young America's Foundation that UC Berkeley is now attempting to quash my appearance on September 14th. So they have gotten back to YAF. And they're now saying that they are not going to allow me to speak there on September 14th. They don't have the facilities. This was their excuse. They always have to come up with an excuse. They can't just say, he's conservative, we're not going to have him. Uh, instead, what they do is they make an excuse. So according to YAF, in an email to the, the Berkeley College Republicans, Dean of Students Joseph Greenwell and Student Organization Coordinator Millicent Morris Cheney denied the students' request for a venue for September 14th, 2017, despite what Morris Cheney called extensive efforts. Berkeley has explained earlier that I was welcome on their campus and they were committed to supporting my rights to free speech. Uh, the administrator said that Berkeley can only host me, quote, when events are held at a time and location that allow for the provision of any required security measures. Well, that's pretty open-ended. They did not provide alternative dates, nor did they provide alternative venues. When YAF asked for excuses, meaning like, can you give us all of the people who are speaking in the venues that have over 500 seats that night? 
Berkeley apparently didn't even provide that. So right now what it looks like is Berkeley making an excuse for not hosting me on September 14th and then offering no alternative dates. Now, Berkeley says they're going to accommodate. They, they say that they are going to offer alternative dates or they're going to allow us maybe to rent a different room, but they're going to have to do that. Otherwise, they're going to be hit with another lawsuit because the fact is that the Bruin College Republicans, YAF, I, we all have a right to speak on the campus. They are a duly, uh, a, a duly appointed student group. Uh, they went through all the usual measures. There is nothing wrong with me speaking at UC Berkeley. In fact, the proof is in the pudding. I spoke there in April 2016, no problem. We had a packed room, about 300 students, no protesters, nothing. So if Berkeley doesn't actually get out of the way here or provide the security necessary to quash their Antifa insane people, uh, then they would be in violation of the First Amendment. This is one of the excuses the left is fond of using now. They don't openly say that they won't have conservative speakers. Instead, what they do is they use the heckler's veto. So they say, okay, well, if there's going to be a bunch of violent people who show up and make trouble, then we have to ensure safety, and so we have to cancel the event outright, which gives the veto to the worst people on earth. It gives the veto to those Antifa thugs. The, what it really incentivizes is a bunch of people on the right to do the same thing to left-wing speakers, right? Go out there and threaten violence that left-wing speakers get canceled. It's, it's horrible precedent. It's really bad. Now, I thought something was really funny. Uh, there was somebody who tweeted me yesterday, and they said, well, now that Berkeley's trying to quash you, aren't you upset with yourself that you didn't support the people who stormed the stage at Shakespeare in the Park? And I said, no, I'm happy I did not support those people since they have the exact same rights that I do. I mean, this is a very, very easy one. If I have the right to speak in a public place like Berkeley, then they have the right to perform at a stage that they have the due ability to perform at. Um, but I think these principles have to be held consistently. Again, I'm hopeful that Berkeley will work it out. I'm hopeful that Berkeley will hear the hue and cry that has arisen from the masses uh, and that they will back down off of this and they will not allow themselves to be intimidated by the Antifa people. Um, but there are measures available in case Berkeley does not do what Berkeley is supposed to do. And if they want to read that as a legal threat, they certainly should because there will be legal action uh, if they do not do what they are necessitated to do under the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. Also, Governor Brown, Governor Jerry Brown of this uh, used-to-be great state of California, uh, I, I would appreciate if you would get control of your own campuses. University of California is under the auspices of the California state government. Uh, when, the, when Berkeley was filled with riots in the 1960s, Ronald Reagan sent in the National Guard. If Jerry Brown allows Berkeley to continue being a place where free speech is shut down, uh, he's just demonstrating that he is wildly incompetent at his job and or helping out the worst form of... of anti-speech fascism in America that is happening on today's college campuses. So I'll continue to bring you updates as all this develops. I mean, honestly, Berkeley is so stupid for doing this. I'm supposed to testify in front of Congress next week, next week about government shutdowns of free speech on college campuses. So I guess thanks to Berkeley for providing me material. Uh, so well done there, guys. Um, but <laughs> uh, we will bring you updates as those arise. Okay. In other news, President Trump yesterday had an interview with the New York Times. President Trump should not do these interviews with the New York Times. It's really funny because for all of the talk about how Trump destroys the media, no one gives the media more fodder than President Trump, right? He goes and he does these interviews with Maggie Haberman of the New York Times. I think Maggie Haberman is quite a good reporter, but Trump obviously desires the love of Maggie Haberman in the New York Times because he does interviews with her regularly, routinely. He does interviews with, with the New York Times because he reads the New York Times because he grew up in New York and he subscribed, I'm sure, to the New York Times. Uh, and so he's interested in what they have to say. He dropped a bunch of bombshells in the middle of this interview that are just not helpful. It's, it's really bad that Trump is, is you know, I, I don't know that he's a stupid man, but I will say that he is a, a guy who really does not listen to what he says. He has, you know, if the Trump family is sort of the Bluth family uh, in, in Arrested Development, uh, then I have... I'm, 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 he, he, he's played all of the different Bluth parts at one point or another. Uh, you know, he, he's played the, he, right, the Democrats think that he is George Sr., right? I may have committed a little light treason. That's what the Democrats think of him. Um, you know, sometimes he plays the, the Trump Jr. kind of Joe Bluth part. I've made a horrible mistake. Right now, he's playing, I, I think that he's actually playing Tobias, Tobias Funke. Uh, and the reason that I say that is because Tobias, his whole problem throughout the entire series is that he says ridiculous things that he can't hear himself. Right, like, and then if he's confronted with tape, he still can't hear it. So he'll say things that are complete gay sexual connotations, and everyone around him hears it, but he doesn't hear it because he's incapable of hearing himself. I feel like that's what Trump does sometimes, because if you were a Democrat and you said, you know what would be awesome was, would be if Trump said X. Within 48 hours, Trump will be out there saying that thing, and he won't even like, understand that he's saying it. It's really, it's really amazing. You know, Trump says things that are, are honest and says some things that are true, and he says whatever comes to his mind first. Uh, and so 
you know, that's not a good thing. Today actually is a perfect day for good Trump, bad Trump. Do we have access to good Trump, bad Trump? All righty. So uh, we'll get to good Trump in a little bit, but we'll start with bad Trump. So Trump does this interview with The New York Times, and he starts off by saying that he would never have picked Jeff Sessions for attorney general if he had known that Sessions was going to recuse himself. The reason that this is intensely stupid is because if you want to suggest to people that you are trying to cover up some sort of crime with Russia, what you don't do is say, I really wish I had an attorney general who hadn't recused himself so he could protect me from the investigation into Russia. This would be the thing that you wouldn't say. So naturally, Trump, being Tobias Funke, just says it and doesn't even really understand what he's saying. So here he is, the Donald Trump, analyst, therapist. Gets the job. Right after he gets the job, he recuses himself. Was that a mistake? Well, Session should have never recused himself. And if he would, if he was going to recuse himself, he should have told me before he took the job, and I would have picked somebody else. Mm-hmm. He gave you no heads up at all. Mm-hmm. Any sense. Zero. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Jeff Sessions takes the job, gets into the job, recuses himself. I then have, uh, which, which frankly, I think is very unfair to the president. How do you take a job and then recuse yourself? If he would have recused himself before the job, I would have said, thanks, Jeff, but I can't, you know, I'm not going to take you. It's extremely unfair, and that's a mild word to the president. So he recuses himself. Okay, so clearly Trump is very upset about him recusing himself over the Russia thing. So uh, to be fair to Trump, the fact is that Barack Obama used Eric Holder as his shield and sword the entirety of his administration. He called Barack, uh, Holder called Barack Obama his wingman. Uh, they, they said they were, they were like best buddies, they used to hang out. And obviously, anytime Holder needed to protect, be protected when he was in contempt of Congress, Obama stepped in and exer- asserted executive privilege to protect him. So it's not un- unwarranted that Trump thinks the AG is supposed to be sort of his protector, but it's not good, right? You're now suggesting that, he, that there's something that is really terrible that's going to happen because AG Sessions recused himself on Russia. And by the way, AG Sessions is a very active attorney general. He's a really ratcheted up prosecutions on illegal immigration. He's done some things that are not so good either. Like yesterday, he came out and he really ratcheted up the idea of asset forfeiture. Asset forfeiture is this unconstitutional notion that if you arrest somebody and you don't even charge them, then you can just seize their property, which is really quite awful. Um, But Sessions is a very active AG. His job is not entirely the Russia investigation. If Trump is saying that the sole qualifier here was going to be that the AG was not able to investigate the Russia thing uh, and that he would have left Sessions out in the cold if you had known that, what it's going to suggest to people is that you wish that Sessions were there to protect you. Right now, I don't know if that's what Trump wishes, but that's certainly the connotation of what he is suggesting. Okay, then he goes further with this. He says, you know, I really would prefer if Robert Mueller, who is the special prosecutor, he shouldn't look into my family's finances. Okay, this is just, uh, again, remember, Robert Mueller was only appointed not because A.G. Sessions recused himself, but Sessions recused himself, and then Trump fired Comey. In order to fire Comey, if you remember the, the former FBI director, in order to fire Comey, he requested a letter from Rod Rosenstein, who was the deputy attorney general. Sessions couldn't write the letter, supposedly, because he was recused on the Russia stuff. So he had Rod Rosenstein write the letter. Now Rod Rosenstein is involved in the firing of Comey, and so now when Comey comes back at Trump and he says, you fired me as basically part of a cover-up on the Russia stuff, now Rosenstein has to recuse himself, and that's how you get the special prosecutor, Robert Mueller, who Rosenstein appointed. Trump is now angry at Rosenstein because he says Rosenstein is a Democrat. He's angry at Sessions, and he's very angry at Mueller because he thinks that the special prosecutor is going to exceed his mandate, which, by the way, he's not wrong about. Mueller is going to exceed his mandate. I'll discuss that in a second. But what Trump says here is so not smart. It's just not smart. Again, it's Tobias Funke. It's somebody saying something that he doesn't hear, and it's not good. Mueller was looking at your finances and your family's finances unrelated to Russia. Is that a red one? Would that be a breach of what his actual? I would say yes. Is? Yeah, I would say yes. Uh, by the way, I would say I don't. I don't. I mean, it's possible that it's a condo or something. So you know, I sell a lot of condo units, mm-hmm. and somebody, somebody from Russia buys a condo. Who knows? I don't make money from Russia. Mm-hmm. In fact, I put out a letter saying that I don't make from one of the most highly respected law firms and accounting firms. Um, I don't have buildings in Russia. They said I own buildings in Russia. I don't. They said I made money from Russia. No, it's not my thing. I don't, I don't do that. Over the years, I've looked at maybe doing a deal in Russia, but I never did one. 
Okay, so he continued by saying that it was it was a violation of, of a red line. And then he said, at the very end, he said, they, they said, would you fire Mueller if he crosses that red line? He said, I can't, I can't answer that question because I don't think that it's going to happen. Okay, so first of all, here's the thing you shouldn't say. You can investigate everything, but whatever you do, don't look in that safe. Right? This is not the way that you're supposed to, uh, if, if you want to avoid an investigation, this is, unless you're Lex Luthor and you actually hid the kryptonite inside the lead encoast, enco, in, uh, encased box and you're actually trying to get Superman to open the box, you don't actually want to say this. Right? This is like you know, the police. The police come into your apartment and they say, can we search your apartment? You say, absolutely you can search my apartment. Just don't search under the floorboards in my closet. Like, what do you think is the first place they're going to search? Obviously. What do you think is the very first place they're going to search? This is the place they're going to search, obviously. So it's, it's really not particularly smart for Trump to say, don't look at my finances. You know, look everywhere, but whatever you do, don't look at the finances. Just don't do it. I'd be mad if you do it. Okay, where do you think Mueller's going to look now? And naturally, this morning, there's a report out that Bob Mueller, where is he looking? Oh, yes, at Trump's finances. Quote, the U.S. special counsel investigating possible ties between the Donald Trump campaign and Russia in last year's election is examining a broad range of transactions involving Trump's business as well as those of his associates, according to a person familiar with the probe. FBI investigators and others are looking at Russian purchases of apartments in Trump buildings, Trump's involvement in a, con in a controversial Soho development with Russian associates, the 2013 Miss Universe pageant in Moscow, and Trump's sale of a Florida mansion to a Russian oligarch in 2008, the person said. So I want to discuss what Trump is right about here and what he's wrong about, because he's not entirely wrong. I think that this is going to end with Trump firing Mueller. I think this is going to get to the point where Trump gets so annoyed that he just fires Mueller. And it will be really fascinating to see what happens next. But I think that it will be uh, – but I don't think that he's entirely wrong to be suspicious of what Mueller is doing. I'll explain that in just a second. But before I do that, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at My Patriot Supply. So the fact is that in any situation, natural disaster, terrorist attack – economic collapse, any, any bad situation, people tend to panic. And when people panic, they go to the grocery store, they buy out the shelves, and there's no food, and, and there's you, disaster preparedness, in other words, is something that you and your family deserve. Here in California, we have earthquakes. They recommend that you're supposed to have food on hand, water on hand, your flashlight, your rate, rate, all these things you're supposed to have. Most people don't have them. This is true across the country. You should certainly be prepared in case there is some sort of disaster that necessitates that you have some emergency food storage. So right now, if you go over to my friends at My Patriot Supply, you can get their new survival food supply for just $99. It includes 102 servings of breakfasts, lunches, lunches, and dinner for less than a dollar per serving. Order now, 888-803-1413, 888-803-1413, or online at preparewithben.com. Again, it's 99 bucks for 102 servings, so it's a great price. Preparewithben.com. You buy it, you stick it in your closet, you forget about it until you need it, but then you're the only one who's prepared. Preparewithben.com. And that way, you know that if there's something bad that happens, you're always going to be confident that you can handle it. 888-803-1413 or preparewithben.com. 102 servings. I mean, that means that you're going to be able to feed your family for weeks. So that's, that's a fantastic deal. Again, it's something that every family should have. And people at the office here have tried it. They say that it tastes like home cooking, so it's actually good. It doesn't taste like garbage. It tastes really good, apparently. So go over to preparewithben.com, 888-803-1413, and get your emergency food supply just in case something bad should happen. 99 bucks is not a, uh, is not a high price for peace of mind. Okay, so... Here's where Trump is right about Robert Mueller. And the entire left is suggesting, how dare Trump? How dare he even suggest all these things? Okay, so Andy McCarthy has a really good piece today over at the Journal of American Greatness, which is basically the Trump Defense Journal. But Andy McCarthy is uh, an honest thinker, so this is not just a, a knee-jerk Trump defense piece. And he says that the problem with the special counsel, he's been saying this all along, is that the investigation that Mueller is now engaging in is too broad-ranging to actually pick up on the original mandate. You remember, the original mandate was to investigate whether the Trump campaign colluded with the Russians in cyber hacking the DNC and then releasing emails. That was the original mandate. It is now expanded to include Trump's finances, Trump's associates. You could see a case, certainly, where Mueller investigates and he goes into Trump's finances and he finds something totally unrelated to Russia that's criminal or a problem, and that ends up being the scandal that takes down Trump. Once you have a special counsel, these sorts of things happen. This is exactly what happened with Kenneth Starr. Remember, Monica Lewinsky never claimed sexual harassment. Monica Lewinsky never claimed sexual assault. Monica Lewinsky was a consensual affair, but that was uncovered by Kenneth Starr in the process of investigating the Paula Jones allegations, and that in turn necessitated that Bill Clinton, when he committed perjury, was going to be 
impeached. So this is the problem with special counsels, and this is something that Andy McCarthy points out. He suggests that in criminal law, our sites are trained on conspiracy, which makes things easy. A conspiracy is an agreement to commit a violation of law. To speak in terms of collusion rather than conspiracy only confuses matters. Contrary to what you may have heard from strategists and analysts, collusion is not a crime nor a term that has a legally consequential meaning. So that's where we are with respect to the Trump Tower meeting. But if there's an, an ordinary federal criminal case, which is what Mueller would theoretically be investigating, if there's no felony... There's no cause to investigate, but still we're investigating. Why? Because once you get into a special counsel investigation, it broadens and broadens. Now, I was in favor of appointing the special counsel originally simply because I felt that Trump had no choice at a certain point because so many people in his administration had been dirtied by the Russia allegations, Sessions, and then Rosenstein and the firing of Comey. And it felt like his administration was losing enough faith that at a certain point, a special counsel was going to be appointed whether he liked it or not. That's what's happened. But now Trump is legitimately scared that something will be dug up on, on any grounds. And if I were him, I'd be scared too, even if I were completely open and honest about the Russia stuff, because once people start digging, they dig until they hit bedrock. They're going to dig until they find something, anything at all. Uh, and, uh, and so that is probably why tr Trump is so, uh, is so upset about the, the special counsel stuff and probably why in the end he's going to end up firing the special counsel, which could precipitate it's, it's not a constitutional crisis. He has the authority to do it, but it could precipitate a major political scandal whereby Trump didn't even do anything and ends up in the crosshairs of the Democrats for impeachment through not really doing anything. Well, I want to explain more about this. Plus, Trump does something on Russia again. I'm going to, I'm going to say that this is more Tobias Funke than malevolence, but uh, we're, going to, we're going to talk about that in just a second. For that, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com. For $9.99 a month, you can subscribe to Daily Wire. We are not just an audio show. We are a video show for people who listen, and you can watch the entire video show over at dailywire.com for $9.99 a month. That means that you also get to be part of the mailbag, which we'll be doing tomorrow. You get to watch Andrew Clavin's show live all the way through, plus you get his mailbag, which he's doing today. Uh, you're going to be able to watch the the many times mentioned but never yet seen Michael Knowles show God help us uh, that will be coming out I think the week after next and so you'll be able to watch that live uh, which is very exciting for some uh, and uh, you're going to want to check that out so go over to dailywire.com and check that out it'll really be fun I think the Noel Knowles show is going to be really funny so you're going to want to check that out uh, and if you get an annual subscription then not only do you get all of the things mentioned above and you get the website ad-free, which you get for any subscription, but you also get for $99 a year this magnificent, incomparable, inconceivably great Tumblr. It says upon it, leftist tears, hot or cold. It is etched in silver, purest silver. It probably is not actually silver. It's probably aluminum. But in any case, it looks beautiful. It is dishwasher safe. You will enjoy it. You will love it. You'll treasure it forever. You'll pass it down to your children. One day on Planet of the Apes, they will uncover it in a cave next to a crying baby doll because it is so great. This leftist tears tumbler, hot or cold. Check it out. Uh, with an annual subscription, or if you want to listen later, go to iTunes or SoundCloud, subscribe, leave us a review, whatever number of stars you're going to give us, add five, and then leave it. Uh, we always appreciate your listenership. Uh, this is the largest conservative podcast in the United States. Okay, so uh, the so Trump, again, I think he says things without thinking about them that can be read in two ways. One is that's completely innocent. Tobias Funke is not, in fact, an anal rapist. He's an analyst therapist, right? And then there, it could be read in, like, the most awful of possible ways. So Trump, last night, he's asked about this second Putin meeting. So the media's been making a big deal out of the fact that at this big dinner, there was this big dinner uh, with all of the G20 leaders and their spouses, and Trump halfway through the dinner, his wife is sitting apparently next to, Melania is sitting next to Putin, he is sitting next to the First Lady of Japan, and he gets bored, and he walks over, and he sits down next to Melania and Putin, and proceeds to engage with them. He said it was a brief meeting, everybody there says it was like an hour, and nobody from the U.S. government was there, so we don't know what was said, we only know what Trump says was said. Um, I think, by the way, the funniest thing about this, this is, this is legitimately funny, is that apparently the First Lady of Japan was sitting next to Trump. In his interview with the New York Times, he said, yeah, I was sitting there next to her, and she didn't really speak English. People, she didn't speak... It turns out she was fluent in English. So she was legitimately, apparently, pretending not to speak English so she would not have to talk to Trump, which is... <laughs> <laughs> that, that's funny. Okay, I'm sorry. That's, that's really funny. Uh, so he goes and he sits down next to Melania and Putin. Uh, and people are saying, what are you talking about for an hour? And Trump uses legitimately the worst excuse available. He says, I talked about Russian adoption with Vladimir Putin. That's what we talked about for an hour. Toward dessert, I went down just to say hello to Melania. And while I was there, I said hello to Putin. Uh, really pleasantries more than anything else. 
was not a long conversation, but it was, you know, it could be 15 minutes, just talked about mm -hmm. things. Uh, we actually, it was very interesting, we talked about adoption. Mm -hmm. You did? Russian adoption, yeah. Mm -hmm. I always found that interesting because, you know, he ended that years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I actually talked about Russian adoption with him, which is interesting because that was a part of the conversation that Don had with this meeting that I think, as I said, most other people, you know, when they call up and they say, by the way, we have information on your opponent. Mm -hmm. I think most politicians, I was just with a lot of people, they said, who wouldn't have taken a meeting like that? Mm -hmm. No, 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 don't do that. Okay, so here's why you don't do that. Donald Trump's original excuse about the meeting with the Russians was that it was about Russian adoption. It turned out that was bull. Now Trump is being asked, what was your meeting about? He uses the exact same excuse his son used that turned out to be bull. Can't you make up anything else? Say the weather, our kids, jujitsu, riding horses bareback, fighting bears, bathing in antler blood, which apparently Putin does. Do any of those things, right? You can do any of those things, but instead you go directly to the excuse that your son used that turned out to be false within 48 hours. <laughs> why? Why, God? Why? Like, President Trump, please, for the love of God, please just know. Just, there are things called teleprompters. Okay, I understand you don't like using them, but you are so much better when you use the teleprompter. He's given some great speeches on teleprompter. He spoke in front of a joint session of Congress. Terrific. On a teleprompter. He spoke in Saudi Arabia. Not my favorite speech. Not a bad speech. On teleprompter. Great. Spoke in Poland. Terrific speech. On teleprompter. He does not have a teleprompter for these interviews. His lawyers must just be thinking, oh, God. Oh, God. He's going to talk to the New York Times again. No. 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 Don't do it. Please. Don't do it. Okay. And then Trump follows this up by saying, Jim Comey tried to blackmail me. Okay. So he, his suggestion is that Jim, that Comey basically was trying to was trying to coerce him into doing something but doesn't make clear what it is that Comey wanted so here's Trump he also had some really fascinating choice words for former FDI director Comey uh, he sure did um, and as we know he has said any, any number of choice words about James Comey for some time um, but he uh, was very specific uh, that he you know believed that Comey was trying to essentially get leverage over him with that dossier uh, making all sorts of wild allegations about President Trump uh, and uh, his appearance in Russia in 2013. Um, you know, he, as we know, he was not happy with Comey for quite some time. Um, long before uh, he actually fired him, there had been some belief that he might even fire him immediately upon taking office. Uh, he believes Comey did that in order to get leverage over him to keep his job? Essentially, the Comey wanted to keep his job and that that was the point in showing it to him. Um, you know, again, the, the president um, feels sort of vindicated, as I think you have seen him say publicly, uh, that uh, Comey had to acknowledge under oath that he had told the president three times that he was under investigation. He said he would not say that publicly because it might change. Uh, the president just doesn't uh, uh, accept that as an answer. Now, listen, Comey uh, is a political actor, no question. But when he says that Comey was trying to blackmail him with the dossier, we have to go back in history. Originally, what Comey said is, I presented this dossier. You remember BuzzFeed released the dossier, which was full of false information about Russian pee tapes and stuff, and about Trump being peed on by prostitutes and, and all that sort of nonsense. Uh, and Comey said, I presented that to the president because it was going around Capitol Hill. I wanted him to be aware of it. I wanted him to be aware that it was being investigated and that we had no proof that any of it was true. And now Trump is saying that that was supposed to be leverage, like that was going to be released by Comey. He doesn't have any proof of that. And what it more looks like is, again, that he's in some sort of poop fight with Comey than that he's actually rightly trying to defend himself. There's two things that are happening here. Trump can be completely innocent in all of this, but he has to stop saying things that make him sound guilty and make him sound like he is, he is getting involved in things he shouldn't be involved in. So... Okay, this is all under the heading Bad Trump. It is not useful. It is harmful. He should not speak off the cuff like this. It is really not worthwhile. Okay, now it's time for some good Trump. At long last, it's time for some good Trump. So I criticized President Trump yesterday and the day before, and I have for weeks, that he has been completely hands-off on this health care thing. He's been very hands-off on health care policy. And it makes sense that he's hands-off on the health care policy because the truth is he doesn't know what he's talking about when it comes to health insurance policy. If you ask him what's in the health insurance bill, there is no one in America who thinks that Donald Trump is an expert on what is in Trump care part one, part two, part three, what's in Obamacare, what all these things do. In fact, there's a poll out today that shows that nearly two-thirds of Americans, 62%, now think that the federal government's job is to ensure that all Americans have health care coverage. Okay, so they all agree with Bernie Sanders, 62%. 
That would include President Trump, who back in January said, quote, we're going to have insurance for everybody. There was a philosophy in some circles that if you can't pay for it, you don't get it. That's not going to happen with us. I mean, that's what Trump actually said. So he buys into that as well. And that confusion, as I have said, has led to the inability of a lot of Republicans to come to a conclusion on what exactly Trump even wants them to do. And so that's been a problem. Trump is now attempting, a little too late, he's trying to apply leverage to some of the senators to vote for something. I am glad that he is attempting to apply leverage. The big problem is that if you apply leverage without knowing what you're trying to leverage people into, it makes it sort of difficult. So here's what Trump is doing that is right. He is trying to apply leverage. Yesterday, he had a bunch of senators to the White House, and he started getting rough with them on camera. And here's what it looked like. We can repeal, but we should repeal and replace, and we shouldn't leave town until this is complete, until this bill is on my desk, and until we all go over to the Oval Office, I'll sign it and we can celebrate for the American people. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so he then continued along these lines by openly threatening Senator Heller. Uh, Senator Dean Heller from the state of Nevada is a moderate. He does not believe in full repeal, basically, or at least he's made noises along those lines. And Trump actively warned Heller, if you don't do what I want, then uh, you might not be a senator for very long. I think I have to get him back. That's right. Heller's sitting next to him. Watch his face. You didn't go out there. This was the one we were worried about. You weren't there. But you're going to be. You're going to be Look, he wants to remain a senator, doesn't he? Okay. And I think the people of your state, which I know very well, I think they're going to appreciate what you hopefully will do. <laughs> and Heller looks like, I just want to crawl in a hole and die. But it, here's, here's, okay, so it's good that Trump is applying pressure. What would be better is if Trump were applying pressure toward a particular actual standard. So the problem is this. Let's say that you're a congressperson, you're a senator, and you're presented with a bill. And the bill contains some good stuff and it contains some bad stuff. What do you do? Do you vote for it or do you vote against it? Now, Trump might like the bill, but he also might not. So you might say, okay, you vote for it because Trump is going to use his leverage, as I have been suggesting he, he should do. He's going to use his leverage to harm me if I don't do what he wants, right? That would be the idea. Except that a bunch of Republicans voted in the House in favor of Trump Care Part 1, and Trump had a big celebratory meeting at the White House. And then three days later, he came out and said that the bill was mean, mean, mean. Why would you put yourself on the line with your own constituents to vote for an unpopular bill that has 20% approval rating under the auspices the president's going to pressure you if you know that he's going to stab you in the back the minute everything goes south? So the president, in order for a threat to work, right? if I, threaten, if I were to threaten Mathis, if I were to say, Mathis, if you do something, if you do X, I'm going to fire you. I have to define what X is, right? So that Mathis knows not to do it. If I were to say, Mathis, you have to make me look good on the show or I'm going to fire you then it's Mathis's job to make me look good on the show. And there's only so much he can do, but he does the best that he can. If I were to say to, if, if I were to, say to Mathis, however, Mathis, do some stuff, or I'm going to fire you. Some stuff, and it's going to get done, or you may not have a job tomorrow. Mathis may not sleep particularly well, but Mathis is not going to know what the hell to do. Right? Does he, is he supposed to use the camera in a particular way? Is he supposed to cut to a particular clip? Is he supposed to make sure that all the clips are cut to their specified length? What is he supposed to do? He doesn't know. In order for a threat to work, you have to have a natural, a natural action and then a consequence to that action. Right? If you do X, I will do Y. What's the X here? Trump says repeal and replace, but that's super vague because they're not going to pass a pure repeal, it appears. It appears that they don't have the votes for this. Lamar Alexander, the senator from Tennessee, he says we don't have 40 votes to just repeal Obamacare. I'll explain why this is the case in a second, but here is Lamar Alexander from Tennessee saying exactly this. Senator McConnell, but uh, it's obvious to me, number one, that the president favors uh, repeal and replace. Of course, we can't repeal it all. We're repealing parts of the Affordable Care Act and replacing it with parts we think will improve it. And that's, that, that's, that's the main thing he, he favors. He wants us to get to yes. And you favor that approach, too? I favor that, too. I don't think there are 40 votes to, to repeal and say to the American people, well, trust us to come up with something in the next couple of years. I don't think that's a very good idea. You don't think they're even so, so what he's saying is I, that the, I, the, the, the Republicans are not going to just repeal. So the plan from McConnell was we're going to repeal Obamacare, and then we'll figure out something to do with it. The problem is twofold. One... The actual repeal bill from 2015 doesn't repeal all of Obamacare, even plain repeal. I think they should vote on it because I think that they need pressure put on them to actually come up with a, a full repeal. But 
the, what, what the actual repeal bill did in 2015, remember, they can only do what's called reconciliations. Let me backtrack. Reconciliation process means that you need 51 votes in order to pass something. Reconciliation means that you can only pass a law that has an impact on the budget. That's just these the arcane Senate rules, okay? If you don't need 60 votes to, to invoke cloture, you only need 51 in order to pass a bill. The bill has to impact the budget. The problem is the, regu- the Obamacare regulations don't actually impact the budget directly. So it's kind of hard to use reconciliation in order to get rid of all of Obamacare. You end up keeping a lot of the regulations but getting rid of the subsidies and the taxes. That inevitably will kill the Obamacare exchanges, but these insurance companies are still required to cover pre-existing conditions, which is going to drive premiums up. That's what Republicans are afraid of. That's why a lot of them don't want to vote for pure repeal. The case in favor of voting for pure repeal like this is that once you do that, then you're going to be forced into a position where either you pass a bunch of regulatory reform and do away with a lot of these regulations, or all the prices go up. It applies a certain amount of pressure. But it's a gamble. It's a gamble. And a lot of people don't want to take that gamble because if premiums go up and people are tossed off of Medicaid, then the number of uninsured go up and people who are still trying to get insurance uh, might be in a fair bit of trouble. So that's why there's a case against plain repeal in the 2015 sense. Now, what they could do is they could actually try to repeal Obamacare wholesale and then try to leverage the Senate Rules Committee, the the Senate Rules, there's actually a person who's like the rules expert who rules on this stuff, try to pressure her to actually allow that to go through. That would be the best available move. But the, the Republicans are now stuck between a bit of a rock and a hard place. But when they say repeal and replace, that's not clear what they mean. It's like when people say immigration reform. It's a buzzword. It doesn't mean anything. Is immigration reform strengthening our immigration system or is it weakening our immigration system? What does it mean to repeal and replace? Does it mean that we're going to get rid of Obamacare or does it mean that we're going to replace Obamacare with Obamacare part two? And so this is why Trump, even Trump is unclear on this. The Republican caucus is unclear on this. Nobody knows what they want to do. So when Trump tries to apply pressure to a caucus that doesn't know what it wants to do and he doesn't know what he wants to do, you end up with this sort of, of wild confusion. And you do end up with a fair bit of of posturing. So Mitch McConnell, knowing that he's not going to be able to pass a plain repeal, he said yesterday, we're going to vote to wipe the slate clean of Obamacare. We will have a vote on this, even if it doesn't pass. As I announced last evening, after consulting with both the White House and our members, we've decided to hold the vote to open debate on Obamacare repeal to early next week. The Obamacare repeal legislation will ensure a stable two-year transition period which will allow us to wipe the slate clean and start over with real patient-centered health care reform. Okay, so we will see if that actually happens, if that vote actually takes place. If it does, then it's at least in part an attempt by Mitch McConnell to simply get the Republican caucus off his back, saying, okay, we tried to pass it, and then we weren't actually able to pass it, so that is what it is. Again, this is because the Republican Party does not agree on what to do. It doesn't agree on the means that it has available to do it, and it can't even make the argument, again, This entire thing could have been avoided in two ways. One, if you were going to leave Obamacare in place, you should have called the Democrats in from day one and said, we want to fix all of this. Won't you help us? And then the Democrats would say no. And you'd say, see, we wanted to fix it. They wouldn't help us. Right? That was the first way to do this. The second way to do this was to say, we want to repeal the entire thing wholesale, and we are going to work continuously to do that, and then say, okay, we don't have the votes to do it. Give us more votes. Right? But to do this sort of repeal and replace routine where it's all bollocked up and you don't know what your goals are, you end up in a bad position. And instead, what you're going to end up with is, is Democrats claiming that you are the scourge of the world, which is what Democrats like Cory Booker are doing. The senator from New Jersey says it's all sinister and evil. It's just terrible, terrible, terrible. I mean, th- that's not just cynical. It's actually sinister. Here is a guy that promised consistently that he was, hey, only I can fix this, that I'm taking, I'm the guy, that I'm going to make uh, health care for everybody, I'm going to make it affordable, oh, it's going to be, I think the word he used was terrific. Well, he's completely abdicated that uh, uh, responsibility, that uh, completely broken that promise. He outsourced uh, this health care process to people like Mitch McConnell uh, and Paul Ryan and didn't even try to reach out to one Democrat <laughs> in the Senate. No, mm-hmm. called, didn't call one Democrat, didn't call us up to the White House. <coughs> To try to work with us. A great deal maker failed to make a deal. Yeah. And so now he's just saying that I'm going to imperil 30 million Americans. If Obamacare fails, it's not just people going to say, hey, policy doesn't just fail. That means Americans will get hurt badly. Uh, and you'll see very devastating things happen. So that's not just a cynical way that's violating his promises. Uh, that's sinister. It is, but- and, and it's evil to, to, to plot against Americans like that. 
Okay, so th this is the case that Democrats are going to make. And Republican incompetent, it, it, it's going to be a little bit of a hard case, but we will see you know, how it works. Daniel Horowitz has a piece today in which he talks about how to defang Obamacare even without full repeal. Um, and uh, it's, it's pretty good. You should check it out over at Conservative Review. He talks about cost-sharing associations and, and, and forcing people to post their prices on particular, on, on particular costs so we can actually have some open competition. All of these are good ideas. There are lots of good ideas that can be brought to bear, but Republicans have to decide what they want to do, and Trump has to decide what he wants to push. Okay, time for some things I like, things I hate, and then we'll do uh, the big idea. So... So before we do that, actually, I first want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Beachbody On Demand. So have you ever looked at this right here and thought, how did that become so magnificent? I, of course, am pointing to my own magnificent physique. Well, one of the ways it became so magnificent is by using Beachbody On Demand. Of course, there are people who are much better examples, and you can see all of them working out at Beachbody On Demand. You can try out all of their courses. It's all of the courses that you've heard of, right? It's P90X and Insanity and 21 Day Fix. And when you go to Beachbody On Demand, then you can get all of these courses with a free trial membership right now. So whenever I travel, I use Beachbody On Demand because I try to work out every single day, which is, of course, why I'm such a beautiful hunk of humanity. Um, but... When you're on the road, it is great. When you are at home, it is great. You don't need any equipment. Um, they give you a wide variety of workouts so you never get bored. It's always been my problem is that when I work out, uh, I get bored. It's why I can't get on a treadmill and just run for eight miles. Uh, I, I need a new workout all the time, and that's why Beachbody On Demand is so fantastic because they have legitimately hundreds of different options for you to use, uh, and it's just great. Uh, so top, uh, so Beachbody On Demand gives you the ability to stream these hundreds of workouts. Uh, again, I've used P90X before. It's fantastic. Uh, it's become world famous, of course. They also have recipe videos showing you what you, are, what you can eat, uh, how to cook kid or vegan, even vegan-friendly meals if that's your, if that's your game. Uh, and uh, you can practice your bartending skills even. So they have all of these courses available to you at Beachbody On Demand. All you have to do is text Shapiro to 303030. So you go to your phone, type in 303030, and then text Shapiro and get full access to the entire platform for free right now. And it gives you step-by-step -step program guides, workout calendars, hundreds of courses, recipes, workbooks. I mean, just fantastic all the way through. Shapiro, 303030. You text it to 303030. You get that free trial membership and you have access to all of these things, whether you need to lose weight or whether you just want to tone, uh, whether you're a big fatso and you just want to make sure that you don't die in the next year, uh, then texting Shapiro to 303030 is the way to do it. You get Beachbody on demand um, and uh, check it out. And that also lets them know that we sent you. Okay, time for some things I like, some things I hate, and then the big idea. So, Things I like. So John McCain was diagnosed uh, really tragically with brain cancer. And a lot of scummy, disgusting human beings uh, are today tweeting out things like they're happy that he got brain cancer because they disagree with him politically. Okay, first of all, let it be said, John McCain is not a terrorist supporter. John McCain is not an evil person. He's not somebody that you would shoot. He's not somebody that it would be appropriate. It would, it should, I mean, he, he's not an evil man, and you're not at war with him. So stop with the crap about how you want John McCain to die. Okay, what you would really prefer is for John McCain not to be elected. Right? You'd prefer for John McCain not to be elected. But that does not mean that you should be wishing death on a guy you disagree with. Listen, I disagree with John McCain on a lot of things, a lot of things. Okay, I thought campaign finance reform was terrible. I think that some of his foreign policy is not great. But the, the, the scummy people who are suggesting that John McCain ought to die just scum of the earth. So today, in honor of John McCain, things I like. Faith of My Fathers is John McCain's autobiography. It's his memoir, all about his family and his time in Vietnam. It's actually a really good book with, uh, with Mark Salter. Um, and uh, it's a, a shockingly good, um, it's a shockingly good memoir, which is, which is, he wrote this back in, I think, 2000. Uh, so it, it's not from his presidential run in 2008. Um, and he, tells it really, really well all the way through uh, from, from his grandfather to his father to himself, uh, his, his being shot down over North Vietnam, spending years in POW camps where he was beaten nearly to death, tortured, uh, nearly allowed to die. They offered him the out to come home because he was an admiral's son. If you would just help them with their propaganda, he said no. Um, and uh, it, it ends, actually, with McCain being released by the, as a POW. It doesn't have anything after that. So it's, it's really more about his military career and his family's military career. Uh, it's actually a really good book, Faith of My Fathers, John McCain, uh, an honorable man, okay, for, for all of the talk about his politics, an honorable man who, who did amazing service uh, for the United States. Um, it was, you know, he, he deserves 
our respect and our prayers. Okay. Uh, speaking of POWs, uh, there's a movie. If you don't want to watch the, if you don't want to read the book, uh, there, there's a, they, they did make a movie version on a and I think, um, but I've never actually seen it, so I can't recommend it. But um, if you want to watch a, a great movie about what it was like to be a Vietnam POW, like an actual Vietnam POW, uh, Werner Herzog made a, a very good film called Rescue Dawn with Christian Bale, one of Christian Bale's lesser known parts. Um, didn't do great business at the box office, but is a very hard-nosed, good film about what exactly happened uh, and about an escape from Vietnam POW camp. came out in 2006. I remember seeing it in the theater and being pretty struck by it. Uh, here's a little bit of the trailer. Tomorrow morning at 0500 hours, we have to cross over into Laos. Now, this is Flight Lieutenant Dangler's first mission. Hey! <laughs> this mission is classified. No one can know. It's a quite a good film. Um, it's a little over long, but it's really well shot and it's really well acted. And uh, and it's it's based on a true story. I mean, this is not a false story. This is a true story. Uh, and uh, the the other people in the I mean, you can see from the trailer. I mean, people were there for for years on end. Uh, there was a lot of talk about whether POWs were still there after the end of the Vietnam War, uh, and uh, and whether they were left there to die. I mean, it's really a tragic story. Okay, so uh, time for some things that I hate. Okay, so uh, the uh, as you know, I'm a big Game of Thrones fan. I think Game of Thrones is the best show on TV. Uh, I don't think that it's particularly close. The, the only other competitor is probably Man in the High Castle, which is really terrific from Amazon. Um, but David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, who are the showrunners, they have a new plan for a new series they want to helm for HBO. It's an alternative history series titled Confederacy, which w it takes place in modern-day America, um, with a, the South is separate from the North. So it's basically Man in the High Castle alternative history where America is divided not by the Germans and the Japanese, but by the North and the South, which is an interesting premise, except for it's going to be really, really annoying. I'll bet it's a pretty good show, but I, I mean, it, it's going to be very, very annoying to read all the hot takes from the left about how the South in this show is really like the South of today, how all of the white Southerners of today are really neo-Confederates who want to enslave black folks. Okay, polls show, I've talked about this on the show before, polls show that white folks across the country have a ba basically about the same level of racism regardless of party, regardless of location. There is no evidence to suggest that Southerners are more hostile to black folks than Northerners are at this point in time. The, the history has moved beyond this, uh, and so I'm already preemptively hitting the hot takes. Less than the show itself, I'm more preemptively hitting the hot takes themselves because that's going to be really irritating. They're going to do exactly what they did with The Handmaid's Tale. They're going to suggest that this is really about modern-day America. It's not really about what, what would have happened. It's about us. We are secretly just like these people. I mean, it's a compelling question. What would have happened if the South had won the Civil War? And it is my belief that within 20 to 25 years, the South would have moved beyond slavery anyway because that's the direction the entire Western world was moving. And by the 1880s, slavery was outlawed in the vast majority of the Western world. It would have moved to probably a South African type apartheid system uh, more than likely, which is basically what they had anyway under Jim Crow. Um, but, you know, thank God for the Civil War and the freeing of the slaves. The great tragedy in the aftermath of the Civil War uh, was not the Civil War itself. It was that in 1876, the Federals pulled out and allowed the South to reimpose all of these Jim Crow sanctions on black folks. That's, that's a real tragedy that's yet to be told historically. Well, that would be a fascinating thing. It's about the loss of the Civil War after the winning of the Civil War in, in a particular way. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm already just warning you about the hot takes that are sure to come and that will be super annoying when you have a bunch of leftists who live in who live in Beverly Hills and see a black person only if they cast a black person, uh, talking about how everybody down south is racist. By the way, the, the, the south is actually significantly more integrated than cities like Boston and the north. 
Okay, uh, one more thing I hate. I will skip big idea today because we just ran out of time, but um, one more thing that I hate. So, as you know, I'm not a big fan of kissy I do not like sycophancy. Uh, I'm not a, a fan of it. Chris Kobach is the, is the secretary of, uh, he's the Kansas secretary of state, uh, and he works closely with the White House, uh, and he was asked about, he's leading up Trump's voter fraud panel, and uh, here is what he had to say. He was asked, did Trump actually lose the popular vote? And here was his ridiculous answer. Do you believe Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by three to five million votes? You know, we may never know the answer to that. We, we, we will probably never know the answer to that question, because even if you could prove that a certain number of votes were cast by ineligible voters, for example, you wouldn't know you wouldn't this know commission exists you, because the president believes that he no. would have won the popular vote? I, I'm glad you asked that question, because actually that's, that is not the reason the commission exists. It's not to uh, justify, to validate or invalidate what the president said in uh, December or January. Okay, stop it. So if, 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 the, if the commission doesn't exist to, to validate or invalidate what the president says, why don't you just say what everybody knows is true? Trump lost the popular vote. Who cares? He's the president. Stop it. Okay, if you're going to do this routine where you don't know who voted for what, then maybe Trump lost. Right? If you're going to say that there was voter fraud and you don't know who voted for what, Trump's margin of victory in the three states that he won, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, right? his margin of victory there was like 100,000 votes. Okay, it's a lot easier to make the claim that voter fraud swung 100,000 votes than that it swung 3 million votes. But again, if, if I'm, I'm all in favor of a voter fraud commission that looks into registration of people who are dead and people who are registered in more than one state. I think that is a worthwhile thing to do. What I do not think is a worthwhile thing to do is to place that on the tentative grounds. And when I say tentative, I mean baseless grounds that Trump actually won the popular vote. That's just silly. And there's no reason to do it. Okay, we'll be back here tomorrow. Tomorrow we will have the mailbag, and we'll do that. Uh, it, it should be awesome. We'll fulfill all of your life longings at that time. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.